Good morning, everybody. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders here. And when my wife Erin and I went to Uganda in 2008 to adopt our twin sons, we had quite a few low points during that trip. One of the low points came when we first met with the, the Ugandan judge and he denied us guardianship of these boys outright. And part of the reason, we didn't know this at the time, but, but while we were there in the country, the country had closed to foreign adoption. And we were there and we were stuck. We wanted these boys into our family and an estimated two-week trip turned into a three-and-a-half-month trip. That was one of the low points. Another low point came when all of the judges in the country were scheduled to have their annual meeting to discuss matters of state. And on the docket for that meeting was this issue of foreign adoption. And the judge had promised us that once they talked about that, he would come back from the meeting and he would hopefully be able to give us a more hopeful verdict. And when he got back, he told us that at that meeting, they actually had things that took up their time and they never got that far in their agenda to have even discussed the issue. And that was a very low point for us. It seemed like almost all hope was lost. Just a few weeks ago, I was rereading over some of the dozens of emails we had received from friends and family at that time from people seeking to encourage us. And we received quite a few emails filled with kindness, like this one that came from Bonnie, who wrote, Another friend and I talked on the phone today, and we cried and prayed for you, for the boys and for the officials. We had many emails like that. We had some emails that contained caution for us, like this one from my friend Gordon. This wasn't the whole email, but part of it said, Remember that God is in control. There are times when things happen that we think are bad, but they are actually better than we realize. The hard thing is that we may never understand how or why, but we have to trust God. We received some other emails filled with assurance, like this one from another person who wrote, Dear ones, do not be discouraged. These are just the labor pains before God blesses you in his perfect timing. And as I looked over these emails, I was remembering that those who wept with us and showed kindness to us were always helpful. Those who reminded us of how dangerous and incomprehensible God is, they were hard to hear, but honestly, they were exactly what we needed. And those who gave us consistent promises of blessing and a quick end to our suffering were not helpful at all. These patterns among these communications with our friends clarified for us which friends we could trust for counsel and which we most certainly could not trust. It showed us which emails we would devour hungrily and read repeatedly and which ones we would blow off and file carelessly. The main point for today in this sermon, the key question I want to ask is this. When life is hard, who can you trust? We're studying the book of Job. 
And today we come to chapter 12. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 271. And in this speech that we will look at today, Job realizes that he can no longer trust his friends. Job is a long book. It's 42 chapters written to show us what it means to fear God in the midst of extreme pain. The book starts out with God wanting to prove to Satan that Job fears him and doesn't merely love what God does for him. So he gives Satan permission to ruin Job's life and to attack Job's health. Job, however, knows none of this, but he has three friends who are here with him to comfort him. And they've tried their best to explain to Job why he's suffering. And essentially what they've said comes down to this. Job, you've done something wrong. Turn from it and you'll have hope of restoration with God. All three speeches from the friends so far, from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, all three of them so far have ended with a clear note of hope. For example, in the last speech, chapter 11, verse 18, Zophar said, you will feel secure because there is hope. Each of the three friends has spoken. Job has responded to each. Today's passage contains Job's response to Zophar, who is the third one to speak. And just so you know, they're not done yet. This speech... Chapters 12 through 14 completes the first of three cycles of speeches. This is just the end of one cycle where everyone got to speak and Job responded. They're going to do this two more times. And this speech is the longest speech in all of Act 2. Act 2 are these interactions with Job's three friends. As you see on the gray box in your outline. In this speech, Job will summarize... Where the discussion has come, he will draw some new conclusions and he's reconsidering whether he can trust these friends after all. And just so you know, the dead giveaway is in chapter 13, verse 4, where he says, As for you, you whitewash with lies, worthless physicians are you all. So when life is hard, who can you trust? We'll see, Job is going to ask himself two questions. Who can I trust? My clearly logical friends or my dangerously unpredictable God? Let me pray and ask God to help us as we study this speech together. Father, thank you for bringing us here and thank you for giving us your word. We ask, Lord, that you would give us hope, true hope, lasting hope. Help us to see the hope that you have and to see whom we can trust when life is hard. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, can you trust your clearly logical friends? Job gets their logic, but he can't take any more of it. Chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. He's starting to get sarcastic. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? I am a laughing stock to my friends. I, who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughing stock. You see how deeply offended he is by the cruelty of their arguments? That he is a laughing stock to them. He says it twice. 
In the thought of one who has ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. You see, their approach is very logical. They've been saying all along, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, and this logic has led them to have contempt for Job because he's suffering misfortune. The guy who loves God, the guy who's called out to God, they have contempt for him, but get this. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. He says, you have contempt for me, who calls out to God, who loves God. I'm just and blameless, but there are robbers that you respect. There are people who are idolaters and provokers of God, but because they're secure and their life is going well, you respect them. This logic is clear and straightforward, but it's utterly cruel. It's like when I was in Uganda and I had friends promising to me a good outcome. They were not true friends. They intended to help, but their logic was actually quite cruel because it was never certain that that was going to have a good end. I have struggled with this myself. I can think in particular, I have struggled at times with the Bible's teaching about parenting because the Bible says that godly parents will bring up their children in the Lord. So if a child grows up and rejects the Lord, does that mean the parents didn't obey God? That they didn't do a good enough job? I've struggled with this. Possibly it might mean that but it's also possible for me to have a clean and clear logic based on some truth, but I take that truth and I use it to fire bullets of cruelty at people like a scared kid with a Tommy gun. (coughs) What's the matter with you? Look at your kids. Their logic is cruel. Second, their clarity is tame. They have lots of clarity about what they're doing. In verses 7 to 25, we see that Job begins with what they all agree with, but then he will trace out the severe implications being ignored by their logic. And I don't have time to read this whole passage, but let's hit highlights. Look at verse 9. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? They all agree with this fact. In fact, verse 8 talks about how all the creation has agreed with this, that God's hand is behind what has happened to me. But notice what implications of that fact Job's friends have ignored. Verse 13, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Job says there are two indisputable facts about God. One is that he knows everything. Two is that he can do anything. With him are wisdom and might. He knows everything, and he can do anything. And are you ready to deal with those facts? Because in verses 14 to 16, he says, you want to know how God uses his power? He brings destruction. He brings isolation. He brings drought, and he brings flood, all because of his power. And in verses 17 to 21, he goes on to say, God uses his power to hurt the strong. 
He wants to hurt the counselors and the judges and the kings and the priests and those who are trusted and the elders and the princes and the strong. He brings them all down. And Job is calling God a bully. That's what it means that God can do anything. And then in verses 22 through 25, he talks about how God uses his wisdom. God uses his wisdom to stupefy and humiliate the intelligentsia. You see, God bullies intellectually as much as he bullies physically. Job's problem with his friends is not that they are immoral evildoers. Job's problem with his friends is that they have no idea how dangerous God really is. They are good, decent churchgoers with a high view of God, but they have declawed the lion of Judah and they have neutered him like a household pet. If you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, do you remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the children ask the beavers about Aslan, the great lion, and they say, is he safe? And the beavers say, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. And then later they say, Aslan is not a tame lion. You see, Job says, God is a bully He is a cosmic intimidator, and he is pushing people around. Now, friends, before you quickly try to defend God against these accusations from Job, you have to remember that God will do these very things to Job at the end of this book. God will appear in a whirlwind. He will ask a long series of intimidating questions and he will bully Job into silence. This lion is most assuredly not a tame lion. But for the friends, their clarity is tame. But that's not Job's only accusation. Third, he says their wisdom lacks fear. In chapter 13, verses 1 through 12, he says that he now does not want to argue with his friends anymore. He wants to argue with God instead because they have misrepresented God as being cheerfully domesticated and they are not helping Job one bit. And Job actually says in here that when God gets a hold of them, he will rebuke them sharply. Job predicts it right here, and it happens in chapter 42. God's majesty will terrify them. His dread, verse 11, will fall upon them. And their wisdom, which has no true fear of God, will fall apart. And God will be sure to come on the scene and put the fear of God back in them. And in verse 12, he says, therefore, without true fear, your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Everything you've said will blow away and crumble to dust. So Job cannot trust his friends. He cannot trust his clearly logical friends because their logic is cruel, their clarity is tame, and their wisdom lacks fear. But is God any better? Can Job trust his God? And more relevant to us, can you trust 
your dangerously unpredictable God? Will God fit into your clean and logical theological package that you have set up for him? So we move on to the second half of the speech. Can you trust your dangerously unpredictable God? First, in verses 13 through 19 of chapter 13, Job risks his life. Verse 13, he says, Let me have silence and I will speak, and let come on me what may. He wants his friends to hear what comes next. He is willing to have come on him what may. He wants to make sure they know why he will put his life in his hand. Verse 14, why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? If it were us, we would say, hey, friends, watch this. Watch me while I take my life in my own hands. And then in verse 15, this is the the key verse, the central verse of the entire speech. Because Job's three friends have ended all three of their speeches so far with a note of hope. And the hope they offer is a hope that will come to Job if he repents. But Job says, no, my hope is in God himself. Verse 15, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Job says, I don't know what he will do with me or what he will do to me when I argue with him. And in a sense, I don't care what he will do to me or with me when I argue with him as long as I get to have him in the end. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. I will risk it all. I will take my chances with this dangerously unpredictable God. And friends, just so you know, this is what the fear of God looks like. This fear of God says, I'll argue my ways to God and I don't know what's going to happen and I can lose it all as long as I don't lose him. When he says, I will argue my ways to his face, this is a turning point in the book of Job because from here... He doesn't groan and lament about his situation as much as he instead starts to argue his case before God. And this is an act of faith on Job's part because he believes that God is good enough to listen to him. He believes that God is powerful enough to know how to do something about it. And he believes that God is wise enough to know how to get Job out of this whole mess. And so in verses 16 through 19, Job says that his salvation lies in the fact that God won't allow godless people into his presence, but Job himself, one who is blameless and upright, he will have a hearing. This is Job's hope. He risks his life. But what is his case? His case before God has two parts. The first part is that God attacks my integrity. And the second part of his case is that God destroys my hope. First, God attacks Job's integrity. In verse 20, he asks God, only grant me two things. The first thing in verse 21 is, please leave me alone long enough for me to speak. Let your hand off me for a bit. And verse 22, the second thing he wants is for God to engage him in a true dialogue. 
My hope is this, God, that we can speak face to face, that I can lose everything else as long as I don't lose you. And so Job moves on to begin to present his case that God has attacked his integrity. Verse 23. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? Will you frighten a driven leaf and pursue dry chaff? For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. You put my feet in the stocks and watch all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man wastes away like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. He says that because God has attacked him without cause, God has written bitter things against him. God has written out charges, guilty, 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 punish, punish, punish. And he's counted him as an enemy because of that. In that last verse, he wastes away like a moth-eaten garment. And this final sentiment leads Job into a profound reflection on his mortality. What it is like to waste away like a moth-eaten garment. And he shows us how his fear of God leads him into a hope that is almost too good to be true. And so that's chapter 14, how God destroys Job's hope. This final amazing chapter of this speech has four parts, crafted beautifully to show us two things. The poet here wants to show us Job's wildly unreasonable hope and then to show us Job's crushing disappointment. Chapter 14, I want to read this, starting at verse 1. First, I'll read 1 through 6. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass, look away from him and leave him alone that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. Job's point here in this first part is simple. It's that man withers like a flower. And he's saying, God, why would you even bother to take notice of a wilting lily or a fading shadow? I am mortal and I'm fading away and I'm withering. Why do you take such notice of me? Man withers like a flower. That's the first part. Second part, verses 7 through 9. For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its root grow old in the earth, and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. Job says here in verse 7 that there is hope for a tree. This continues his theme of the whole speech of hope. 
And he says a tree can be cut down and the stump can even die in the soil. And yet at the scent of water, it will sprout again. It will bud. It will put out branches and a new plant will be reborn from the old. The point is that trees hope for resurrection. And then he goes into this third part, verses 10 through 17. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last. And where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up. So a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. Friends, Job looks at the tree and he sees that a tree has hope for resurrection and that makes job hope beyond hope to experience resurrection himself he says all this suffering would be worth it he says my death would be a sweet comfort to me if God would use that death as a diversion to expend his wrath to hide me in the grave so that his wrath would pass over me and then at the appointed time verse 13 God would remember me and verse 15 God might call out and Job I would hear his voice and Job would find new life where I could serve God forever And in verse 16, he says, God would no longer hound me for my sin. Verse 17, he says, my sin, my transgression would be forever sealed up in a bag and would never see the light of day. I hope for resurrection. I want to be with God forever. I want his wrath to be forever dealt with. I want my sin never to get between us. Job knows that he's a sinner, even though his sin is not the direct cause of his suffering. And he says, I want new life with no suffering, with no pain, with no loss, with no heartbreak. And in verse 14, he says, I would wait all the days of my service till my renewal should come. In other words, all of this pain I've been through would be worth it if there was a final renewal, new life waiting for me at the end. This is my hope. But this hope for Job is too good to be true. 
Consider his heartbreaking conclusion. Verse 18. But the mountain falls and crumbles away. And the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man. This is a pretty big but. This brings an end to Job's grand hope because God destroys this hope of man. There will never be resurrection. Verse 20, you prevail forever against him and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. God said, or Job says, instead of God's wrath passing by, God makes the suffering man himself pass away. 21, his sons come to honor and he does not know it. They are brought low and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain of his own body and he mourns only for himself. Job says, there will be no resurrection, only pain. What are we to do with this speech? Job's climactic conclusion to the first cycle of speeches and the turning point at the end of the first cycle, I would like to make two applications for us in closing. Number one, leave room for this counterintuitive tension. Leave room for this counterintuitive tension. Job can't trust his friends who have a happy, clean, clear, hopeful, and logical message. But he can trust his God who attacks and destroys him. Because maybe, just maybe, his attacks have a deeper, incomprehensible purpose and he'll cover Job's sin and resurrect him to new life. Friends, until you can say, I don't know what God is up to, but it sure hurts. You probably don't fear God as you should. The tension is this. God will attack what you hold most dear, but he's still the only one you can trust. Because the things you hold most dear can't give you life. So God must attack them in order to give you life. We love to have our truth packaged up in simple and clear portions. We want everything to make sense. We want to be left alone and to have happy little lives. We want to be able to answer the question of why are these things happening to me? We don't like it when Bible-loving Christians disagree with each other. We don't like it when loneliness characterizes us more than blessing. We don't like it when there is no peace but only pain. We don't like it 
when our children begin to question the faith that we've taught them. And friends, when you feel the tension of God attacking the things you hold most dear, don't try to squash it. It's part of God's good plan to fuel in you a desperate longing for resurrection. I have already had more than one of my children question God's existence in ways that to me feel too insightful for their age. And when it happens, my blood pressure rises and I want to crush their doubts with solid truth. And it's much harder to slow down and to let the tension sit there and to let them process it and simply to ask them, why do you feel that way? And in God's mercy, the few times when that has happened, I've discovered that usually the doubts are coming from some sort of pain or sadness or humiliation or embarrassment that they've experienced. And when those things, when that pain comes to light, I then have the opportunity to paint a picture for them of resurrection hope that it doesn't, it's not always going to be like this. And that leads us to our second application. First, leave room for this counterintuitive tension. But second, leave room for a hope too good to be true. Leave room for a hope too good to be true. When we settle for a nice and tame but cruel theological package, we actually subvert the truly hopeful hope we have in Christ. Let me illustrate. You may have figured out in your own mind the predestination and free will debate. You may have gotten it figured out. But how will you comfort the woman who has a miscarriage? Will you say to her, God killed your child and you need to suck it up? Or will you say, maybe you shouldn't have chosen to get pregnant anyway? You see, there are times when no matter what the theology is, we can fire it out cruelly. How will you comfort the person in the identity crisis? How will you comfort the teenager whose parent commits suicide? We won't understand all of God's ways. And this is very tense. And this tension drove Job to wish for resurrection. Only for Job, he thought it was a wish too good to be true. Because for him, he thought there was no resurrection, only pain. So one day, God would send a man more righteous than Job, who would come and he would walk the earth. And the Lord Jesus Christ in John 5 would say, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, the very thing that Job begged God for, to hear his word, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Job said in 14 verse 7 that there is hope for a tree. And you see, his hope would one day come on a tree. 
in the form of an innocent man, blameless and upright like Job, one who feared God and turned away from evil like Job, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they hung Jesus on a tree. And like Job, Jesus was counted as God's enemy. Jesus Christ, this one who came from heaven to arbitrate between God and man. God wrote bitter things against Jesus like he did to Job. And like Job, God drove Jesus away. And like Job, God made Jesus waste away like a moth-eaten cloth. All the things that Job feared in Job chapter 14 happened to Jesus. And because of what that innocent man did on that tree when he died on the cross, our renewal, our resurrection has now come. For God has hidden us in the palm of his hand and he has caused all his wrath and anger to pass us by. And now he remembers you and he speaks and he calls to you. Will you answer him? Though he slay you, will you trust in him? The fear of God, friends, is not about having all the right answers. The fear of God is not about getting your theology all straightened out. The fear of God is not about going to church on all the holy days. The fear of God is not about cleaning up your language and cleaning up your life. We'll see the fear of God in how we respond as a church when we move to a new location and a new time next week. Because things will go wrong. Stuff will happen that we didn't expect. Families will have to wrestle with nap times for their children. We may have to take a break from Sunday school. Small groups won't look exactly the same for a time. And I don't even know what's going to happen. We have no idea what kind of suffering God might have in store for us. We don't know what God will do. But what we do know is that it's going to hurt at times. Friends, the lion has roared. He has bared his claws. He is not predictable. And he is not safe. Trusting him will not be easy. It will cost you your life. But when it does, he will raise you up in the glorified image of his perfected son, Jesus Christ. This hope sounds too good to be true. This God sounds too too dangerous to be trustworthy. But when life is hard, he's the only one you can trust. You can lose anything as long as you don't lose him. Let's pray.